time to time, and it's a really good question. And uh, the question is, who told you? Who told you that? Right? We, we love new news, don't we? Oh, we do. You know you do. You love getting some new piece of information that you're not sure everybody else has. And you know what you do with that new news, don't you? You light that phone up. You call people, you text people, did you hear? And people say, where did you hear that? Right? Listen, you sit there and act holy all you want to today. <laughs> you know. You get that new piece of information and out comes that phone, you're gone. There's an old English word called Godsib, G-O-D-S-I-B-B, Godsib. Godsib happened when godparents were, would stand in in a baptism of a child. You know, there's parents presenting their child to be baptized, long practice of the church all the way back to the second century. And whenever the parents would bring their child to be baptized, many times there would be godparents. And the godparents were making a pledge that if something were to happen to the parents, we would step in and take care of this child. And not only that, we're gonna be intentional in this child's life, throughout their life, and in, intentional in this child's discipleship. And so whenever the godparents would stand there and they would make that proclamation, it was what the word was, they were godsib, right? Over time, over time, that proclamation of godsib turned into the word gossip which means idle chatter or rumors, spreading rumors, right? You know what gossip is. And that's just like Satan, right? I mean, to take something that started as a proclamation of fidelity and loyalty, and I'm gonna pour into this child's life and I'm gonna be there for them as they go through life. It's just like Satan to take that word and to change it into gossip, which is something that has damaged many people's lives over the years. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, church, is do we spend more time talking in gossip or gospel? Which is good news, right? Do we spend more time in our conversation engaging in gossip or gospel? A friend of mine, I was talking last week, talking with him, and he was telling me about, he's been doing this practice. It's a very old, ancient practice, discipline in the church called examine. You, you may have heard of this. It's where you take time to intentionally examine your life. And so how he's been doing that is that every night as he is getting ready to go to bed, he thinks through every conversation that he has had that day. And he asks himself the question, did I spend more time in that conversation talking about myself? Did I spend more time in that conversation talking about others, gossip, or did I spend more time in that conversation talking about the kingdom of God, gospel? And he says it's been one of the most painful things for him because he's realized that as he's gone throughout his days, he's having a whole lot of conversation about the first two of those and not a whole lot of kingdom conversation, but it's changing him and it's molding him in powerful ways. And the challenge that we have is just that. Do we spend more time in the realm of gossip or in the realm of gospel? But being a disciple and making disciples, which is what we're talking about today, uh, it has to do with what we say, it starts there, but it also has to do with what we do, our practice, how we live out our faith. 
There's this saying that's been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which says, preach the gospel, right? Preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. Now, historians of St. Francis will tell you that that St. Francis never said that, okay? But the heart behind it, I think is very true. I think it's very important for us to understand that, that our actions have to back up what we say. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17, we know that. So there is a proclaiming component to it. We know that, absolutely. But the question then is how do we live that out? And what does that look like? Especially in the context of contemporary Christianity where we've reframed a lot of biblical terms along the way. And I think we re need to regain biblical discipleship and then what it means to make disciples of others. But again, the balance has to be there between what we say and what we do. So first thing I wanna do is I want us to back up just a little bit and look at Jesus's model of disciple making because Jesus does this in different ways uh, and on different levels. And so we see, for example, 17 times in the gospels, Jesus is talking to the crowds. He's talking to the crowds. This could be people who are very devout. This could be people who are not devout. Sometimes the Pharisees are in the crowds, but he's talking to the crowds or some of your translations say the multitudes. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is what's called kingdom proclamation. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He is revealing who God is, although it's limited in some ways because it's monologue, not dialogue. But Jesus does this as a way of making disciples. There's kingdom proclamation that takes place. But then we see Jesus, for example, with the 120. And what Jesus does with the 120, he gives kingdom instructions. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to stay there until the Holy Spirit comes to empower you. So we see Jesus literally giving kingdom instructions, telling you, I want you to go from A to B, and I want you to stay there until this or that happens. And so that's another way that Jesus disciples people. Or you look at the 72, right? This is where we see kingdom empowerment, where Jesus empowers the 72. He sends them out in pairs and he sends them out to go advance the kingdom of God, to proclaim the good news that the kingdom is on its way. And he gives them authority to do that. Now, now most of us uh, remember or know that, that Jesus spent a whole lot of time with the 12. And, and when Jesus spent time with the 12, this is what's called kingdom revelation. Jesus would teach to the crowds. He would teach to the, you know, whether it be uh, thousands or hundreds. He would teach to the crowds, and then the disciples would come to him, and they would say, okay, Jesus, you're teaching in parables. Will you explain that a little more to us? And so in those conversations, because they're more dialogue, Jesus is revealing, that's why I call it kingdom revelation, he's revealing more and more about who God is, the nature of God, and what the kingdom is like as it's spreading throughout the world eventually. But then not only did Jesus have the 12, Jesus also had the three, Peter, James, and John. If you look throughout the gospels, you'll see that there are times when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John away and they get a glimpse into what the kingdom is like uh, that the 12 really didn't get, or the 72 didn't get, or 120, or the crowds didn't get. For example, he takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. And, and I call this kingdom saturation. Uh, this is where Jesus takes these three away, and yes, they're, they're getting the revelation that he's revealing about the kingdom and all that go, goes with that, but, but also the kingdom is being saturated into their heart and mind in deep and meaningful ways. And what we see in Jesus' model, where it goes from the crowds all the way down to the three, is the, the more increased dialogue that there is, it, it gives room for intentional discipleship, more intentional discipleship. Because again, what I'm doing right now is monologue, right? I mean, I'd really appreciate it if you didn't talk unless you want to give me an amen, and that'd be wonderful. But, um, amen? Yeah, there we go, good. 
Good. But the, the smaller the group, the more Jesus could dialogue with them and get at the questions that they had, the things that they were wrestling with, the things that were challenging to them. And we see Jesus live this out in the crowds, 120, 72, 12, all the way down to the three. And what Jesus shows us here is that discipleship, it can happen in any size group, any size group, in any context, doesn't matter the cultural context, and it can also happen in any stage of life. It does not matter how young or how seasoned you are. I was being nice. Now, um, th so Jesus here tells us this. It doesn't matter the size, it doesn't matter the context, it doesn't matter your stage of life, as long as you have people who are receptive. As long as you have people who are receptive to the kingdom of God breaking out in their life. And we have this generational faith that we pass down to others over and over again. And whenever we are in that place where we're becoming a disciple, our call then is to make disciples. To hear about that, I want, I want you to listen from a man. He's sitting over here to my right, your left, Michael Gross. I'm not going to bring him up on the stage and give him a microphone. You'd be here for a long time. So, we should, that's true, yeah. Love you, man. Um, so we shot a video. Turn your attention to the screen. So the more we are discipled ourselves and then have that ability to disciple others, we, we can free ourselves from you know, the, everything that you know, Hebrew says, throw off everything that entangles us in the sin that so easily besets us and run with endurance the race. And that's the beauty of discipleship. Because if we know the word, if we know how to apply that word to our life, we don't get caught up in, into the lies of saying, hey, hey you're not, you're not, God can't love you. You keep committing sin. We get the opportunity to grow you know, by being discipled first, plugging in with someone. You know, Dr. Andy Harris, I mean, that was, when I first came here, it was, it was through the college ministry that he taught. And then about the time Andy felt led to move away from the college ministry into the singles was just about the time I was graduating and it was my time to move up. And so for a period of about 15 years, Andy was my Sunday school teacher. And I even had the opportunity to meet with him one-on-one -on -one for discipleship in a weekly basis. And so uh, he was laying that foundation of Sunday school. John Ed was laying a foundation, you know, through the services every, every week. Um, and so he was, both of them were being able to plant that into me that then in turn allowed me to turn around and so many years later go back and teach the same Sunday school class that Andy taught me in. Um, and it was all because he had discipled me and then God kept saying, it's time for you to go. You know, because I struggled with that. There was, a, there was a point where I looked and said, God, I can't go teach that class. You know my past. You know those things I've done. What am, how am I going to stand there? And he goes, you need to share those things because someone else is going through them. I've given you the opportunity to learn through them. Now it's your job to teach other people that they can learn through these mistakes. You know, for me personally, that's the beauty of, of being discipled and then getting the opportunity to disciple others. I am so thankful for people like Dr. Andy Harris, Michael Gross, and so many others at this church and other churches who see that, that is that calling to be a disciple, and then you disciple other people, and they raise their hand like Isaiah, and they step up and say, here I am, Lord, send me, send me, so powerful. And Michael, you have an age today. It looks great. 
Yeah. We talked about Jesus and disciple making. I want to talk about Paul and disciple making. In your notes, there, there's Philippians 4 9. This is a very important verse. Very important verse. And I think it's not just an important verse, there's a pattern here that's important to us in understanding making disciples. Philippians 4 9, Paul says, Keep putting into practice. Now, notice he says the word practice. He, does, he did not say keep reading, keep memorizing, keep studying. No, no, no. You put it into practice, you do it. Keep putting into practice all, that's a big word, all you learned from me. All that you've learned from me. Now, we have to remember Paul's, the way Paul views discipleship. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And, and a lot of times when we first read that, we think, wow, that's a pretty bold statement. Now, no, hear what Paul is saying here. Imitate me, the word imitate uh, comes from the Greek word that we get the English word mimic. So mimic me, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate Christ. What Paul is saying is imitate, follow what you see of Christ in me. Don't follow Paul. Follow what you see of Christ in me. Imitate what you see of Christ in me. And so right here, he's saying the same thing. Keep putting into practice all you learned from me. And the question is, how did I learn from you, Paul? How did I learn? He tells us, he tells us. All you learned from me, what you heard from me, speaking, and what you saw me doing, practice. That's how we learn. That's how we pass on the faith, as I said in the beginning. And right here, he says, do this. Keep putting into practice all you learned from me, and you know how you learned it. You learned it because you heard it from me, and you saw me doing it. So there's a connection between what we say and what we do, what people hear and what they see in us. Because when we say it and then we live it, that's when we really believe it. Because faith is believing obedience, right? I believe it, therefore I obey. I do it. I do it. Now, many times there's a disconnect that takes place between what we say we believe and what we actually do, right? Yes. Safe space. You can be honest about yourself. Yes. Many times there's a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we do, which means people who are looking to us and listening to what we say and then how we live our life, there's confusion on their part, right? And the confusion is there because we are giving them a distorted image of Christ. We're giving them a, a, a fuzzy image of Christ, right? Because we're saying one thing and we're doing another. Actually, we're losing whole generations of people who are looking at the church saying, you say one thing, but you don't do that. That's happening, right? Now, some of the things that we believe and even understand from Scripture, we need to reframe those in a very healthy way. Yes, I believe that, and we're going to do a little bit of that as we move forward. But we have to understand that we have a generational faith. We talk about this a lot around here. Our call is to leave a generational legacy. It is a multi-generational legacy. It started with Jesus. He passed it on to the 12, to the 3, to people like Paul. Paul passed it on to people like Timothy. Then there's been 2,000 years of this. 2,000 years of this, this faith being passed on generation to generation. And then somebody, somebody told you. I don't know who that was, but somebody told you. May, may have been a parent, maybe a sibling, a friend, somebody, a grandparent, grandparents in the room. You've got an amazing opportunity to pass on the faith to your grandchildren because they listen. They listen to you. But somebody told you. And then now you have this thing called faith. And the question is, who is the somebody that you're going to pass it on to? 
This is normative Christianity. This is how it works. And our calling is to recognize and be thankful for all those who have gone before us, especially those who directly impacted our life by pointing us back to the first cause, which was Jesus himself. And then our job is to go take that and share that with other people around us. Now, what does it look like to do that? What are the characteristics? I'm gonna give you four characteristics of a disciple. And what are we looking for in other people so that we can disciple them? I wanna give you four things here. The first characteristic, both that we need to see in ourselves as disciples and we're looking for in others so that we can help disciple them is number one, they have to have a heart for God. They have to have a heart for God. They wanna know God, they wanna spend time with God, they wanna be like God, but here's the thing. I have to say this because of our context in the South. Having a heart for God, what I don't mean by that is having a fear-based relationship. So many times what happens is we, we kind of go into this relationship with God, so we think, but it's based off fear, and many times it's based off the fear of going to hell. It really is. And we just think, I, you know, I just don't want to burn one day, and so I need to you know, be okay with God. Listen, no one ever got into a loving relationship, and no one ever stayed in a loving relationship based on fear. And if you don't believe me, just ask someone who has gone through an abusive relationship. That's not how it works. Now, some of you are probably thinking, now, wait a minute, Chris, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a lot about fear in the Lord in the Bible. Yes, there is. If we're talking about fear in terms of, I see God for who he is in all of his holiness, and I see God in his holiness in light of my unholiness, and it makes me tremble to the core, yes, I'm for that kind of fear, absolutely. But I'm not for the fear that leads to some kind of eternal retirement plan. The fear that we just say, you know, well, I just don't want to go to a bad place, therefore I've got to go get right with this God out there in some way, so maybe I won't go to that bad place and I'll try to do enough good things so that maybe I can get into heaven. You know, this retirement idea has bled into how we think about a lot in the church today. I've literally had people tell me that they've retired from volunteering in the church. They say things like, well, I used to do that when my kids were young or whatever. And I always say, I need a chapter and verse for that one. I just don't think that's in there. But it also bleeds into how we think about heaven. You know, we work for this day out there when we just kind of hit retirement and, you know, do more hobby stuff, but we, and it bleeds into how we see eternity. So when I say we have to have a heart for God, I mean, we have to want to know God. We want to be like God. He's not just our escape hatch. Number two, not only do we have to have a heart for God, number two, we have to be available to God available for God to use us however he wants to use us. It's one of the reasons why we've been praying the Wesley prayer in here, this prayer of surrender. It has, it has a lot to do with what we do, but it also has to do with uh, why we do what we do, our motivation behind what we do. And we really have to grapple with this and wrestle with this. Why do we do what we do for the kingdom? Why do we do what we do on behalf of God on the planet? A friend of mine planted a church in an inner city setting, very low income setting. And he, he needed volunteers every month to come out because they would do food drives and clothes drives and all this stuff. And he told me one day, he said, Chris, he said, I figured out how to get volunteers here. I said, great, tell me. Our church is always looking for volunteers. How are you doing it? He said, every time we're having an event, I know I can get 100 volunteers here if I tell them that the news will be here. He said, people love picking up a box and walking in front of the camera, smiling. 
Look at me, humble servant of the Lord. He's like, it sounds so bad. I just tell him the news is going to be here and my volunteers double. We have to ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? I and mean, we've created a culture of pat me on the back. I mean, we throw our hip out walking around. There it is. You can pat right there. I want people to pat us on the back, to stroke our ego, to fluff our narcissistic feathers. Why do we do what we do? You know you're available to God when you've surrendered the praise and credit that you could get for kingdom work. When you get to that place where it's not about somebody patting you on the back, it's not about you getting the credit. When you join that nameless, faceless army that just says, I want to build the kingdom and I just want to be available to God and I want Jesus to get the credit because the one that gets the credit gets the glory and he's the only one that deserves it. It starts with having a heart for God. You have to be available to God. Number three, this one's important, and that is you have to be faithful to God and to others. Now, for many of you sitting in the room, please don't miss this. For many of you sitting in the room, as soon as I say the word faithful, you translate that in your mind as perfect. I did not say perfect. I said faithful. And here's where we have to have a biblical understanding of faithfulness. Faithfulness throughout Scripture is not about perfection as we define it today. Faithfulness throughout Scripture is when I fall down, I get back up. Yes? When I fall down, mess up, blow it, it's called sin, whatever you want to call it, I get back up. That's biblical faithfulness toward God and others. I fall down, I get back up. And it's in those moments when we fall down, it pushes us to say what Paul said. Don't look at me. Look at Christ in me. Don't look at me. Just see what you can see of Christ in me and learn from that. But not Paul, not Chris, not you. And God is calling us to be faithful. We have a heart for him. We make ourselves available to him. But then we're not perfect. So when we fall, we get back up and we keep going. So that people can see the perfect one. The only one who is perfect. And then people see our progress along the way. As Michael was talking about in the video. They see our progress along the way and what the Lord has done in our life. Where we used to stumble all the time. Now we, we take strides before we fall. Yeah? And they're seeing that progress and growth in us. They're seeing faithfulness. Faithfulness. It starts with having a heart for God, being available to God, being faithful to God and others. The last thing is you have to have a teachable spirit. You have to have a teachable spirit. It seems like there's two extremes in the church today. Either number one, we say, I, you know, there's no way I could disciple someone else. There's no way that I could teach the Bible. Or the other extreme is I have all the answers in a marked up Bible to prove it. Right? I'm glad you bought all five colors of the highlighter. You know? Right? that we live in these two extremes. And, and, and if we're going to be a disciple and if we're going to disciple other people, we have to have a teachable spirit. God told me a story about a year ago about how that several years ago, many years ago, decades ago, he went out to California to a conference. It was at a really big Baptist church. 
And he was a Methodist preacher and he went to this big Baptist conference and church growth conference and all these people were there, thousands and thousands of people from around the world. And he said he looked up and he saw his Methodist preacher hero. He was like, oh, there's another Methodist here. Not just any Methodist, this is my hero. My hero Methodist preacher. So he went up to him, he goes, oh, I'm so glad you're here. He said, when are you speaking? Surely you're speaking. You've done so much for the kingdom. When, are, when is your turn? He started pulling out his itinerary. He's like, you know, when, when are you speaking? And John Ed Matheson looked at that young man and said, I'm not speaking. I'm here to learn. So you've got to keep a teachable spirit. You've got to say, you know, I know I'm walking into a new day. Every one of us are walking into a day in which we've never experienced before. We're gonna have challenges this week we've never experienced before. We're all in the same place and we have to stay teachable. We say, God, I wanna have a heart for you. I wanna have a heart for you, not just what you give me, but for you. I wanna make myself available to you. I wanna be faithful to you and to others. I'm gonna keep getting up. I'm gonna keep getting up. No matter how many times I fall, I'm gonna keep getting up. And God, all the while, I want you to teach me. Keep teaching me. I really believe if we could be selfless enough, if we could get out of our own way long enough to make divine deposits into other people's lives so that God can be glorified through them and in them. If we could get out of our own way, make divine deposits for the glorification of God in others, that's when we're discipling people. So many times we think I need to pick people who I like or who like me. I need to pick people who we agree on certain issues or whatever the things are. The question is, do they have a heart for God? Are they making themselves available to God? Do they wanna be faithful to God and others and do they have a teachable spirit? When we have that and other people have that, that's when we can disciple others. It goes back to that chart. Jesus, Paul, Timothy, 2,000 years of discipleship, somebody told you. Praise God for them, but who are you going to tell? If you really believe this is good news, this is gospel, don't keep that news to yourself. But tell somebody. So Lord, would you give us the boldness and humility to do that? Lord, we want to have a heart for you. We want to make ourselves available to you. We want to be faithful to you and to those you've placed in our life. And God, we, we want a teachable spirit. And then, Lord, we just want to see those around us who have the same. And God, I pray for each and every person who is here, who's watching online, on television, God, I pray that we would pass on the faith that has been passed on to us. Let us not lose another generation. Let us feel the responsibility and the awesome privilege of simply talking about you. And may you be glorified in those to who we talk to. Lord, we love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. 
We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, amen.